Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and welcome to ShopCast, the radio show that's focused on exploring everything that's happening in retail today. In fact, exploring everything that's happening with every consumer-facing business today. Uh, what it takes to win, why we're seeing so much change, and all of the other challenges facing our industry. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm your host. I'm a partner at AT Carney who focuses exclusively on consumer and retail-facing businesses and helping investors decide uh, where to put their capital to work. And I'm also co-author of a couple of books, most recently, Retail Seismic Shift, which takes a long look at the industry, what's driving the changes, and what it takes to be successful. And I'm incredibly excited for today's show because I have another author who's taken on the same topic, uh, Barbara Khan. She is the professor of marketing from the prestigious Wharton School, and she's recently written a book called The Shopping Revolution. And we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about her ideas, what she thinks driving the change, and also what it takes to be successful. After all, it is a pretty turbulent time. Over the last week, we have seen two CEOs from large companies in our industry, one depart and one move on to another company. First of all, we saw the CEO of Campbell's uh, depart. One of the big challenges they've been facing, of course, is how to ignite growth. And in my book, I sort of outlined the challenges of the fragmented consumer base and fragmented supplier base that's driving a lot of innovative upstarts and nibbling away at all of these large CPG companies. And uh, the challenges that Campbell's has faced has obviously led to a big change there. We've also seen a big change in the department store sector. Uh, this last week, Nordstrom somewhat underperformed investors' expectations, and Macy's seemed to get a little bit of momentum going again, so maybe some changes there. But the big news, of course, was that uh, Marvin Ellison, the CEO of JCPenney, has actually departed and headed to Lowe's. And that is going to raise all sorts of questions about uh, the turnaround at JCPenney, what's going to happen in the long term there, and obviously it's probably a, a great gain for Lowe's. So we seem to stay in a situation of incredible turbulence still, a lot of different sectors up and down, and uh, the pattern's sometimes really hard to figure out what's happening. And that's why, as I mentioned, I'm really excited to have Barbara Khan join me today. So let me give you a little bit more background on Barbara. She is the Paddy and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. She's also served two terms as the director of the J.H. Baker Retailing Center, just an outstanding organization focused on retailing. And she's been the dean and professor of marketing at the School of Business Administration in the University of Miami. And she spent 17 years even before that as professor at marketing at Wharton. Um, she's also the vice dean of the Wharton undergraduate program, notable author. She's written 75 articles in leading academic journals as well as a number of books and her most recent book, The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers in the Era of Endless Disruption. Barbara, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. And what you recounted in your introduction, what a week, huh? It was amazing. <laughs> Just an average week, isn't it? So you pick up, you pick up the newspaper and besides everything that's going on politically, which is unbelievable, you then pick up and think about retailing and consumer businesses, and the rate of change is just outstanding. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You talked about the personnel change, and, and it has been. Today, in particular, was a very interesting day. But not. I feel the same way. I pick up the newspaper every day, and Amazon's announcing a new innovation, or Walmart's made a new acquisition. And It's, it's not just this personnel change, which is... It, it, the rate of change is amazing, but just all this change in innovation in an industry that you would think would be so innovative. I know for the longest time it seemed, particularly for the CPG companies, as one of the safest places to be because you just tagged along GDP growth, nothing that dramatic up or down, and suddenly everything just seems to have shifted. I definitely see that I teach marketing and I teach a branding course. And as you mentioned, I've been teaching it for quite a while. And when I would list, you know, the biggest brands in the world, they were always the same. You know, they'd switch around. Maybe one would be two and then the next time five. But it would be basically the same 25 top brands. But right. in the last five years, it's amazing the upset it's been in, in these different brands that have power and how small brands can overtake 
big, well-establishments. That's, to me, shocking. It is. It's, uh, it's quite incredible. So let, let's build on that, uh, Barbara. What do you think is enabling those little brands to take over from some of the big brands? What is actually starting all of this incredible disruption that we're seeing in the retail world and in the consumer, the consumer world? Well, I mean, the little brands, you know, like you mentioned, Campbell's, another one that I, I take a look at a lot, which was shocking to me, was Gillette. And to watch Gillette has been a powerful brand for a really long time, owned by yep, P&G. Um, and that's a pretty stable, routine industry that you would not imagine that much disruption. And then two little upstarts come in, Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, and they yep. steal share from Gillette. And, you know, how could that possibly happen? And I think there's a couple trends that have made this happen. One is vertical brands. And people have been talking about disintermediation for a long time. But mm -hmm. the idea that a brand can start out, in both of these cases, online and go directly to the end user facilitates movement in a way we hadn't seen before. And the so other thing that I think is really different is there does seem to be some significant differences in the younger consumers, um, what people are calling Generation C or Millennials. Uh, they yeah. are used to dealing online so that they're very comfortable in that realm and they will accept a new brand as reliable, you know, if it comes from a new place like this. And they also, while they seem to be brand loyal, they are loyal to different brands. And both of that really seems to disrupt it. Th those are two forces. The other force, of course, is Amazon. Yeah, 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 of course. It seemed to me like a lot of the CPG companies were almost asleep when social media started and you could go online and start to build a brand online. You could, uh, for very, you know, comparatively low dollars, buy uh, the right terms to search on Google. Google. So suddenly these upstart brands were showing up on the websites and in all of these social media locations that um, previously were inaccessible for any brand because obviously they didn't exist. Or, you know, if you were trying to get that type of reach with a large audience, it was prohibitive from a dollar expense. But the CPG seemed to be asleep on that. Was that a big factor as well in terms well, of... Well, you know, that's interesting because Dollar Shave Club, they did that crazy video. And that crazy video went viral. And that yeah. really was a phenomenon that, you know, eventually Unilever ended up buying them. So they're back in, in, you know, with big brands again. But it's still kind of amazing how much attention that video got. So that's to your point directly. I don't think people understood the power of social media when it was first starting. And for those of us uh, who are listening, who aren't necessarily familiar with that video, could you just... Uh, uh, remind us what that video did and, and yeah, why it was, it was so catchy. Yeah, uh, was this guy who was talking about how he was going to make. He was funny, um, and he was going to make his 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 blades were quote fucking great, you know. And he just came. <laughs> it was like the most tongue in cheek funny video, and because yep. it, it just had this edginess to it, and it was talking about razors, and he just said some crazy things. People just sent it on to each other, um, and it it went viral because it was so clever. Uh, I think it's hard to reproduce things like that. You know, you can't yeah. always guarantee you're going to get such a great video like that. But And then he introduced low-cost razors, uh, low-cost blades, and a subscription service, I think it was originally. And all of these were new ideas that just resonated with his target audience. Right. And do you think he was really solving a big pain point for people? You know, in some regards, I guess – you know, for a lot of men sort of going out and just replacing razors is a chore that they don't want. And that was a big pain point. But he solved that very creatively because it seems to me some of the best examples of these startup businesses really do solve a pain point as well as doing obviously the fancy marketing, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things that underline, you know, the approach that I take in my book is that there's mm -hmm. two ways to be better. One's to make it more fun and the other's to eliminate pain. And yep. I agree with you on this Dollar Shave Club. There are two pain points he got rid of. One, he made it easy and convenient, and two, he lowered the price. And coincidentally, those are the two pain points that Amazon goes after also. Yeah. Well, that's a great lead, and I'd love to um, uh, get uh, some context for you of why you chose to write the book now. And then, if you could, at a high level, explore that main concept, which is you know the Khan Matrix, which I love because I think it does lay out so clearly – uh, what is happening in retail today and how retailers can think about positioning themselves. Well, I mean, the, the reason I wrote the book was 
personal, I guess. I had stepped down from two terms at the Baker Retailing Center here at Wharton, and that retailing center brought together traditional retailers, the big department stores we had big CEOs from Macy's, Saks, all of the big guys were on it. And we also had a connection with what are known as the digitally native vertical brands like Warby Parker, Bonobo. So I was talking just practically every day with all these people in the industry and keeping up on reading all the trade journals and things like that. And when I and, and, of course, all this disruption is happening during the last six and a half years, which is when I was running that center. And when I stepped right. down, I had the luxury – maybe you do as an analyst, I don't know, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily have this luxury that are in the – in the business themselves is I don't have to worry about day to day. I can take three, four, five months to sit down and think. That's what an academic gets to do. That's, you know, my life. And here I stepped down from this daily interaction with all these people and all this change. And I thought, let me see if I can make some sense out of it. And I had the luxury to do that. And so I spent the next when I stepped down, I spent the next three or four months trying to come up with a synthesis that I thought made sense to explain the industry. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I found for me that I don't uh, I don't quite have that luxury because I have day to day expectations that people uh, have in terms of some of the assignments. But similar to you, because I've been helping investors think about the the long term, I had a opportunity to interact with a lot of leading CEOs. And I just found that there was a lot of confusion out there in terms of, okay, where is this going and how long is this going to last, this change? Is it, is it something that's going to perpetuate itself for a long time or is it just a, you know, we're just going through a sort of a cyclical change here? And that led me to, to want to write my book uh, was because, you know, as you look out three to five years for investors and where they're putting their capital, it, uh, it's necessary to try and say, okay, we need to think deeply about this, even though, you know, I'd be doing it quite often inside projects. But uh, it sounds like you had an incredible ability to talk to both the, the startup companies who are disrupting as well as the established players, and then a time to sit back and really reflect on it. Yeah, and that's what motivated it for me. Mm-hmm. So tell us then, uh, uh, what is the framework that you have developed and how does it think about um, segmenting retailers into different areas and what are the characteristics behind each of those areas? So when I started doing this, I, you know, I, again, I'm, when we teach business in, in business school, a lot of times what we try to teach is frameworks, taxonomies, a way of thinking. And so my first instinct was to go back and look at traditional matrices that defined retail and see if I could pick one that was there in the past um, that I could use to, to, uh, to define what's going on today in retail. And what I found out, which was amazing to me, is most of the classic frameworks of retail uh, eliminated what was obviously the most important principle of marketing, which is the principle of customer value. So when I went back and looked at these retail matrices or looked at the way retail was discussed within the industry, Mm -hmm. nowhere did I see the customer perspective. And that's shocking because retailing is about delivering to the end user, delivering to the consumer. That's what defines it. So what were these old frameworks? How could the customer be missing? And the reason I think they were missing is that retailers think about product. They think about merchandise. They think about design. Mickey Drexler was known as the merchant prince. The most important position, people will tell me, in retail is the chief merchandising or, or officer. It's about the product. And on the other hand, it's about operations, logistics, inventory control, costs. So most right. of the old matrices had product and they had operations. And I'm a marketing professor, and to me, it's all about the customer. So that's the first thing I did in my matrix. I said, what's the principle of customer value in retailing? And the answer is, what customers want is they want to buy a product they value from a retailer they trust. And so Mm -hmm. those form the two columns of my matrix, the product aspects and then the customer experience aspects. And then the second principle that we teach in Marketing 101 is the principle of differential advantage, which is... Customers are going to go to the retailer that does it better than someone else. And so that was what we were talking about before. There's two ways to do it better, make it more fun or take away the pain. And if you have those two ideas, you've got a four-quadrant matrix, which I call you know, the con-retailing success matrix, and, yeah. the, and we can go over what those quadrants are. But the basic idea was you had to be good enough at all four of those things um, in order to win. 
Well, Barbara, let us take a break now. And when we return, uh, I would love to go through each of those four quadrants, maybe with a specific retailer in mind and discuss how it applies and what insights were derived from it. Uh, uh, but it does sound fascinating. And quite frankly, it's incredible, isn't it, that retailers could forget the customer and the way in which they were thinking about things. So <laughs> um, anyway, you're listening to Shopcast. I'm Michael Dart, and uh, I'm here with uh, Professor Barbara Kahn, and we're discussing her new book, The Shopping Revolution, and we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast, and uh, I'm Michael Dart, and I'm here with Professor Barbara Kahn discussing her new book, The Shopping Revolution. So, Barbara, when we left, uh, you were about to tell me um, how the matrix works and, and how different retailers are positioned within each of the different quadrants. So, if I could... Uh, let me start first with maybe uh, what's top of mind for nearly everybody, and that's Amazon. Where does Amazon sit, and how does it compete in the framework that you've developed? So the way I define this matrix, as I mentioned before, it's a two-by-two two matrix, and the top row is increased pleasure, and the bottom row is eliminate pain. And and I think what and the other thing that's really new about my matrix, as we discussed earlier, is this focus on the consumer. So I call that column customer experience. The product benefits column, retailers have known about, you know, build a good product, yeah. build a good brand, lower the price. And what Amazon did, and, and Jeff Bezos says it all the time, he says the goal of Amazon is to be maniacally focused on the consumer, on the end user. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that was really a new idea in retail. And so what I think that Jeff Bezos did was – Focus on what the consumer wanted in terms of eliminating pain points. And the most important pain point was make it easy. I think everything that he's innovated, starting from one-click shopping, was about yeah. make it easy. The, the, one of the things that blew my mind when I did research on this was that in, I think it was 1997 when they introduced one-click shopping. It was mm -hmm. such a new idea that they got a patent for that. That was mind-boggling to me, that you could patent one-click shopping. And I believe the patent did not expire until 2017. So for all of those years, Amazon yeah. was by law the easiest way to shop online. And so, so they've obviously been, you know, the leader, as you describe it in your matrix, of being the uh, frictionless, most convenient, eliminating all the pain points for the consumer. And I must say, I love it with the way in which, you know, Amazon Pay seems to work now across other sites. Obviously, they've done an incredible job with Prime as well, which just makes it incredibly easy for me to, to order things, not worry about the shipping costs, et cetera. But they seem to compete also in another quadrant, and, and, and that is obviously low price. They seem to have a very low price as well. So how, how do you think about the interaction between these quadrants? And does a retailer need to be focused on one, or could they be in all of them? Because quite frankly, Amazon's also getting into a lot of branded product as well now. 
Well, what, what I found, and this I kind of didn't go in, I did go in thinking about the two principles of marketing that I'd been teaching forever. So those were a theory I took with me into the analysis. But the theory that I developed coming out of studying this was this yep. idea that you have to be the best at something and then leverage that best to be the best at something else. So the strategy that I found when I looked at what I thought were the retailers that were really creative and were really going to be winning in this disruptive world, they -hmm. were good enough at all four quadrants. So they were good at product. They were good at low price. They were good at, you know, a customer experience that was at least pleasant. And they were good at making it easier. The frictionless, those are the four quadrants. They were good yeah. enough at everything. But the ones that were really doing well when you looked at the numbers had something that they were the best at. And then, because the market is so competitive, they've leveraged that leadership advantage to be the best at something else. So that was, I call that the two-quadrant strategy, and that was surprising to me when I figured that out. That they're all the ones that you're looking at that you would define as real leaders in retailing, it's not okay to just be the best at something anymore. You have to be the best at something else, too. And so uh, what I do believe, and I, you know, this was my analysis that I, when I did all the research on this, that Amazon leveraged their position as being easy and frictionless and collecting all this customer data, because that's another part of their strategy, to then leverage yeah. that advantage to be the best at low price. So they are not only easy, they're low price. And I contrast that with Walmart, which for years and years was a very strong retailer, still is a very strong retailer, pretty much competing on operational excellence and lowest price. And in today's disruptive industry, that's not sufficient. They have to have a second quadrant leadership, which is why I believe Uh they bought Jet.com. So in your your matrix, uh, Walmart is really – you know, in the low price quadrant, really focused about product, delivering that at the lowest possible price. And what they've started to do is move into the, I guess, what is the frictionless quadrant, which is eliminating pain points, becoming much more convenient, much more easier to use. And that's why they've been making all their investments in Jet.com, Bonobos, ModCloth, and others, is because they well, need to Bonobos get that. Well, Bonobos and ModCloth is more for the product. Um, okay. But it is why I would okay. argue they did Jet.com and they just recently bought Flipkart in India and they've yeah. invested in their stores. What they've been investing in their stores is to make it easy to you know, shop online, pick up in the store, the curbside stuff and all of that. And all their investments that they're doing to be easier. Um, and that was historically for the last however many years being an operationally – excellent company, one of the best in the world, had been sufficient, it no longer was. Right, right. Interesting. So uh, let's pick another quadrant that you have then. This is the uh, the one which is real pleasure associated with the product itself, sort of the branded product, um, you know, superior quality. I guess I think of that of luxury, premium product, etc. Um, who's in that quadrant and what do they have to do to be successful? Yeah, you know, that I had two different kinds of co- companies in that. It, it is interesting to watch the numbers and see that luxury companies still seem to be doing pretty well. So even with Amazon, who, where Jeff Bezos famously said, although I couldn't find this documented anywhere, but everyone on the Internet seems to believe that Jeff Bezos said, your margin is my opportunity, and a lot of people are worried that he's trying to commoditize products and to to kind of take away that brand, even in the world like that, luxury still seems to hold its own. So if you have a brand with legacy, with heritage, with real customer value that people really believe in, it seems that that still has appeal. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been teaching marketing forever, and I can't tell you how many times people talked about the death of brands, and brands don't seem to go anywhere. People still just love their brands. So there's those one part that exists in that are these brands that just have this long history. Nike is one, the luxury brands, those kinds of things. The other thing that I put in this um, quadrant, though, on brand are the um, vertical brands. So either the yep. legacy yep. vertical brands like Zara or the digitally native vertical brands like Warby Parker or Bonobos, where they have these brands and they eliminate layers. So they compete on this great brand, but they do it at a reasonable price because they get rid of layers in the distribution channel. 
Interesting, interesting. And do you think that uh, the nature of a brand has changed over the last few years? I mean, one of my hypotheses is that uh, uh, the aperture, if you like, around brands has narrowed significantly because of the fragmentation and that a lot of people who thought they had brands really didn't have brands. They just had labels on things as opposed to obviously somebody like Nike who has a you know, an incredible brand strength or Louis Vuitton who has incredible brand strength. But uh, I'm just curious your thoughts on um, has, has the nature of brand significantly changed as we've gone through this uh, revolution here? I do think it has. I think it does have to be, you know, again, in this two-quadrant strategy, I don't think just having a strong brand is enough. You look at Louis mm-hmm. Vuitton now, they're partnering with Supreme, they're developing yeah. all these new cool stores, they're trying to create this customer experience that, that so it's more than just the brand, it's the whole lifestyle experience around it. Nike's always been pretty good about thinking like that. It wasn't just their high-performance product, but it was also the whole experience that was built around Nike. And I think that if you don't have both the strong, strong, enduring brand and some kind of other advantage like a customer experience, your brand runs the risk of becoming commoditized. Because what Amazon is doing is showing people that they can buy a similar brand for a lower price if you just are willing to go with Amazon Basics or something. And a lot of the young people that I talk to, they believe a product is a product. Yeah. No, that that's true. Well, let's let's talk about the uh, the next part of the quadrant. This one where you know, it's a, a great experience, but it's really all about the pleasure and really creating, um, I guess, some sort of extraordinary, pleasurable, entertaining environment and experience for the consumer. Who's in that, and what are they doing that works? And now this is a place where I kind of fault some of the pop media that I see, because I mm-hmm. see a lot of these articles that say, you know, now retail is so, so disruptive, and if you want to compete with online, you have to have a great customer experience in the store, and they're almost yeah. glib about it. It's like, let's have coffee and cake, you know, along with our dress shopping, and that'll make the experience better. The ones that are really, really winning in my mind in this customer experience, they think much bigger about what a customer experience is. So one of the ones that I think is doing an amazing job is Sephora. And yeah. if you think about what Sephora is, and beauty's a great category. And where was beauty sold before in the department stores? And mm-hmm. talk about not being customer focused. If you think back what beauty was in the department stores, it's shocking. So yeah. everybody knows if you buy cosmetics by beauty, you got to try it on. How do you know what it's going to look like if you can't try it on? But think what the department stores had. They had like these I don't want to say that, you know, they had these salespeople on commission, high-pressured salespeople trying to get you to buy something, so you didn't really want to talk to them because you were afraid they were going to, you know, go after you. And then when you wanted to try (laughs) on a cosmetic, they had to get it from behind the counter and find it for you. They made it as difficult as possible, where Sephora understood no commissions on their salespeople, so salespeople are genuinely there to help you and to understand, and they made it a beauty playground. That's mm-hmm. an experience. It's social. It's, it's educational. It, you can try things on. Now they're experimenting with, you know, art, uh, artificial, uh, what's it called, AR, virtual reality yeah. and augmented reality and all sorts of data to, to make sure that we get the right products for you and all sorts of things like that. What Sephora is doing in my mind is, is fantastic. That, I think, is true customer experience. And it's one that just feeds very naturally off the the whole social media phenomenon as well, because uh, so many people love to go into the stores and and then post pictures of themselves trying new things, trying new looks, uh, seeing new products. And so it, it just seems like it's got an incredible uh, uplift from social media, as well, of course, in the beauty category, the whole um, movement where you've got these experts who come in and... Uh, out of almost nowhere, suddenly get a whole slew of following, you know, folks who, who just want to see what they're actually trying. And obviously, they're making quite a lot of money, some of these uh, these uh, advocates now for different products and brands. But uh, that just seems like an incredibly holistic, engaging category. Do you, do you think there's something unique about beauty or is this something that could extend elsewhere? I mean, there are other things that – one of the things that in that matrix that I call customer experience increasing pleasure, it's about categories that have sensual appeal where physical matters. 
So anything where any of the five senses matter is going to matter in this category. So it could be food. It could be touch. It could yep, be, yep. you know, a musical, experiential, something like that. I haven't seen that much on music yet, but it potentially could be. But beauty is, is the color, the vision, the touch, you know. Food would be that, the taste. It's anything mm. like that mm. where you need to do that. Where, no, but it, you're never going to lose the importance of physical. Right. So let me summarize again. Uh... Uh, the the quadrants we just went through. So you're saying one quadrant you could lead with is brand superior product. That's one. Second one is could be low price operational excellence. Um, third one would be frictionless, incredibly convenient. And the fourth one, experiential. And your argument again, just to summarize what we said, Barbara, is that you have to be a leader really in one of those as a very dominant characteristic, and then at least be very competitive, I guess, or, or or strong in a second one. Is that right? Is that how I should think well, about it? Well, no, yeah. What this? I think is you got to be good enough in everything. So you take Toys yep. R Us, which wasn't good enough in most of them. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to shake out of the market. So first thing, you have to be good enough in everything. And expectations are constantly being ratcheted up in all of these categories as it gets more and more competitive. And then you're seeing the ones that are really doing well are the best in something, and they are leveraging that leadership advantage to be the best at something else. That that's what I think is happening. And it's, it's the ability to really – and any one of the two, that's what was surprising. At first I thought it was just going to be horizontal because when I was looking at Amazon, you know, they were yep. going from frictionless to low price, and Walmart was going from low price to frictionless, and luxury was going from brand to customer experience and back and forth. So I thought it was horizontal. But the more I studied the innovation in the industry, the more I realized it can really literally be any two quadrants. But you, but you really need to be more than just the best at something. You've got to do something else well. Mm-hmm. And this goes to one of, um, I think, one of the toughest challenges for incumbent players, and I'm curious how you think about it, because most of the companies that I look at, which are in each of these quadrants, almost grew up with that as being their starting mission. As you mentioned, Amazon started out really wanting to excel with the customer, be incredibly convenient. Uh, incredibly frictionless, et cetera, and then is sort of been branching out. What about the retailers who kind of don't have one of these big differentiating characteristics? They sort of sit in the middle, if you like, and you mentioned Toys R Us, sort of maybe average on all of these characteristics. How have they fared and, and, and how easy is it to move in one of these directions to be successful? You know, that's a traditional marketing thing. We teach this for years. If you're just pretty good at everything and not great at anything, you're literally stuck in the middle. And I think that's what's predicting a lot of these store closings. What's interesting is all these big box retailers, they put all the little retailers out of business. You know, the Circuit Cities, the Toys R Us, the Borders, Radio, yep. well, not Radio Shack so much, but all these others. Put, and now they're being dominated by bigger assortment online and lower prices because it's more efficient. So what are they offering that's distinct? Just nothing. Mm-hmm. So what, do you, what is your prognosis then for somebody like a JCPenney who arguably sits right in the middle of this quadrant, not yeah, excelling well, necessarily? Yeah, JCPenney's benefited from Sephora. That was one of the best things they ever did. So that was yeah. great. They got that customer experience in. A lot of the other things just didn't work out well. And then they had, you know, bad timing on Ron Johnson. I personally thought that Ron Johnson, when he was CEO, had some very creative ideas. I just think he was yep. putting them in the wrong retail situation. Uh, he didn't implement well. But I thought his ideas were pretty interesting. But unfortunately, the devastation that he caused to JCP was happening at the same time all these disruptive forces were happening in retail. So it was pretty hard to recover. And, you know, there was some positive movement in JCP was doing a little bit better. Some of that problem had been cleaned up. But with today's announcement, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and Barbara, I, let's apparently say, that's been reflected in the stock market. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it's a, a pretty pretty volatile time. And uh, any bad news gets uh, pretty heavily punished in this uh, current environment, or any changes even that uh, are unexpected. Let's take another break here and uh, would love to continue our conversation when we come back from a short break. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm here with uh, Professor Barbara Kahn, and we're discussing the shopping revolution. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 
Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast and our conversation with Professor Barbara Khan and her new book, The Shopping Revolution, which I encourage everybody to get a copy of. It's uh, uh, a great read and incredibly thought-provoking. So, Barbara, um, what does the future retail landscape look like then? So as, as you think about um, the problems you've laid out, you think about the way in which different retailers are going to compete, what does that mean in terms of the physical infrastructure, bricks and mortar, uh, what the consumer should expect to see in the future? Well, I think everybody I talk to, nobody's predicting the end of bricks and mortar, but tired retail can't can't exist. It's going to have to come up to new new expectations because if it's a chore to go to a store, it's much easier yeah. to order online, and that's what people are going to do. But there's still a lot of pleasure in going to stores. There's a lot of reason people want to buy. It. They want it right now. They can't even wait two hours. They want. We talked about it before. There's some physical reasons people want to go to stores. So I don't think anybody's predicting the death of stores, but most mm-hmm. people think, and I know you said this a lot, in, um, in the U.S., we just had too many physical stores. So you were going right. to see this shutdown of some stores, regardless of all of this happening anyway. We just had too many. Yeah, that's for sure. One of the, the pieces of data that I recently saw uh, was actually uh, an analysis on the top five REITs, uh, mall REITs, and the bottom five mall REITs. And what was really interesting to me is the bottom five, five performing more REITs in, in terms of the investment level had seen negative traffic for the last two years. And interesting enough, even the top five performing more REITs from an investor perspective had recently turned negative on traffic and were following almost an identical pattern, not necessarily as precipitous as uh, the other malls, but nonetheless still negative traffic. And so uh, while I agree with you, I think people are going to go to the stores. What is the future of malls and can the economic structure that's been in place that's been supporting these sustain given if, if those trends continue, um, given what's going to happen? Well, so I think there's a couple things that are different. What, I, I don't know the data that you're looking at, but one of the things that I saw about malls were that pe- people were going and spending less time when they were there. They would go to fewer stores, so they apparently were doing shopping online or doing some kind of information search online, and then when they right. went to malls, they spent less time there. And that could also be you know, less, t- less going to the mall itself or spending less time when you go there. So I do think the the complementarity of shopping online and shopping in store will affect the traffic in the malls, and you can observe that. The other thing that I think you know, you see, and people are using these malls and physical space in more creative ways, and the idea of measuring success by sales per square foot seems right. not to be relevant anymore. So you need to look for new, new metrics that make it worthwhile to invest in physical space. So the idea of using it as, you know, a showroom or using it as a branding mechanism or using it to create brand excitement or something like that, and then measuring the advantages of that, I think it has to be done. Because I don't know, you probably know more about this, but sales per square foot just seems like an outdated metric for success now. No, it really does. I think um, 
you know, the, the, all the metrics, if you like, that are uh, used to measure traditional retail need to be rethought in, in today's world. I, I tend to think that return on invested capital becomes way more important uh, uh, than sales per square foot. And, and at the same time, I think you also have to look at the fact that in a low growth environment, and a lot of these retailers are actually going to get smaller because of all of the things we've talked about, uh, same store sales growth not necessarily be a great metric for them as well. And they get still over punished on that. One thing right. I want to look back to, to Barbara as well is um, you mentioned, um, you know, people spending a lot less time at malls, et cetera. And I know one of the forces that uh, you outline in your book as being very fundamental in changing the way in which we're shopping are the attitudes, expectations, behaviors of Gen Zers. And my sense is Gen Zers are spending a lot less time going to the mall. In fact, the mall is nowhere near as compelling as it was to, uh, to almost every other generation. And I'm curious if that's what you're seeing and, and what that potentially means for the well, malls and the future of shopping as well. Some of the data that I saw on that showed that these Generation Zs, the really young ones, the ones that are in college right now, are still going to physical store. But, uh, and more than you think, some, uh, there was a new study ca- that came out by the NRF that said 98% of these young people say they do do some or most of their shopping in a physical store, which is pretty high. I don't know how reliable mm-hmm. that data are, but still that was the percentage. Uh, but but uh, uh, people I've talked about said don't make too much of that in keeping maybe with what you're saying is that when you're young, you're still in college, you don't plan ahead. Maybe you don't right. have your own credit card. There's a lot of reasons why you might be going to physical stores, and that behavior may shift when they start getting into to their 30s and life hits and it's just not convenient to go shopping all the time. You know, you have that time crunch that happens yep. in your 30s and 40s. Um, and then I suspect these digitally native consumers who really are very comfortable shopping online or shopping on their phone or soon to be caught shopping through Alexa really won't mm-hmm. be going to stores for the same routine tasks that people have gone through before. Right. So you mentioned but Alexa. I, do, I think people still are going to want to get out of the house. You know, people have been predicting the end of movies for a really long time, and that still seems to be going on. Well, that's actually a great point because actually, you know, uh, movies in many ways offer, and movie theaters offer uh, uh, insight in terms of what retailers should be doing. Because as you said, everybody said, let's go stay at home, we can watch the movies. But the movie theaters started making reserved seats, better seating, and entertainment, meals, drinks, et cetera. And that experience has continued to dominate and people love to still go to the movies. It's, it's the same thing, by the way, I think for um, major museums and art galleries. You'll see a line out the door and people spending a lot of money to go into museums and art galleries, uh, even though you could see all of the, the same paintings online. But there's something that about that experience that they've done really well as well. So I agree yeah, with you I mean, on that. I think- People, you know, virtual reality I don't think is ever going to replace real reality. Um, mm-hmm. it may, they may be things that are different, but as long as we're human, we're going, to need, we're going to need social interaction. We're going to need to move. You just can't stay in your house all day long. And so I think the retail scene will, will change in response to that. Um, and, and things that are easier to buy online and which just who wanted to shop for them anyway, that's, people will naturally move to that. The other thing that I've heard people say about Amazon, and they've obviously been the big disruptor here, is, you know, maybe Jeff Bezos was just taking out all the poor retailers and, you know, raising the bars, and we'll see much, much more improvement in the industry as a result of his force. That's really, that's a great point as well. Uh, on that note, what about big box players? Uh, all of the things you've been talking about, and the matrix seems to point at, is unfavorable on on a whole bunch of dimensions for the big box players. Obviously, Toys R Us, you know, is the the big victim right now, probably because of its capital structure as much as any other trend. But the trend certainly didn't help. Can big box retailing invent reinvent itself in this era, or is that also on uh, well, a I'm sluggish term? Still around, I guess. Home Depot and Lowe's are still around. Best Buy recently made the relationship with Amazon. We'll see how that works out for them. Yeah. Um, what are the other um, big boxes that are still around? Barnes and Noble is struggling. Barnes and Noble is struggling. How about like uh, Michael's Arts and Crafts, something like that oh. as well. Yeah. I mean, again, those are things that are that are very experiential. uh, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the other thing that's interesting about that one and also what Home Depot was is that you want to go in and learn about it. There's that educational factor that you want to talk to someone, you want to try to figure out how it's going on. 
that I think um, will still have the physical store will still hold some appeal for that. Also, if the logistics of delivery are difficult, like I don't know, you know, like this Home Depot, there a lot of big things are sold there, or if that might yep. be something that you still want to see the physical space. The other thing that I think is very interesting in this retail world is what CVS and Walgreens and those are doing in, in incorporating health uh, yep. into it and making because those are reasons people do have to go to the store. Or you look at Costco, and Costco's doing surprisingly well, even though they're direct competitors in many categories with Amazon. But they have an in-store experience that people like, the treasure hunt kind of thing that they have there, and the right. fact that when you need gas, you got to drive your car to fill it. You can't, like, order that online. Um, not yet, anyway. You know, Costco, I agree with you. It's done a phenomenal job. And uh, for many reasons, I'm, I've been somewhat pessimistic about Costco just because – uh, why order? Why go to the store and buy all of the toilet rolls and everything that they sell on the perimeter if you can have it shipped to you at about the same price and maybe in lower quantities that you don't have to use to fill up your garage or other places? But they seem to do a great job in both having innovative product and passing on just uh, great savings to the consumer. And as you say, that treasure hunt experience in the middle part of the store still seems to work. So uh, there's somebody who sounds like you're pretty bullish on and uh, I guess I should change my opinion on as well. Well, yeah, I was a little suspicious of them, too. They've now recently, they have started to do more delivery, and they're realizing that they better get up to speed and frictionless, which I always thought was important. I, for a while, they were resistant there, but I think they've changed their tune on that, and they're going to try to do better on that. Uh, I, what I found very interesting when I was doing my research is they said, like, I, I don't know if this number is exactly right, but something like 50% of cost, people who have Costco membership also have Prime membership. And I just anecdotally talked to people because I would assume, why would you have two? You're going to drop right. one. And I talked to a lot of people who did have two, and they said, at least in the near future, they have no intention of dropping either one because they serve different purposes. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, let me switch topics quickly here. I want to get your opinion on a few other things. So first off, leadership. When you're going through such incredible amount of change in an industry, and you've obviously hung out with a lot of different leaders. What are the characteristics that you think are necessary to be successful in retail today, and, and who do you most admire? Well, I mean, I did have a chance to see some really interesting people. I mean, I have to admire Jeff Bezos. The, I, the more I study him, the more I think he's a genius, although right. I don't think it bodes well for him that there's so much talk about how unpleasant it is to work there. So I think that He's going to have to do something on that dimension. I think they've already started to think about that, but that's an issue. Um, I've on that really point, what, what have you actually okay. heard, Barbara? What, what have you heard on that? I, uh, I'm curious, uh, sort of what the uh, the background noise is, if you like, in terms of the culture and the environment there. Well, I mean, you know, there was that famous New York Times article that said it's just relentless and it made people oh, cry yeah. and you're supposed to work all the time. And supposedly the people I've talked to now said it's not that bad anymore. There's been evidence that Jeff Bezos has been willing to show a human side of him. You know, they had the famous uh, uh, Super Bowl ad with the Alexa lost his voice, and he was in that ad. I saw it was shocking to me. He a famous tweet he made on Mother's Day to his mother, you know, to make him seem more human <laughs> like that. It seems like there's a concerted yeah. effort on that. His, his talking a little bit more about his philanthropy and what he might be investing in and some of his values. I think all of that matters. Uh, it's not an, an, I, I seriously do think the man is a genius, but I don't think that's enough. And so I think that he's going to have to figure out how to do all of that stuff, and I think they're trying to do that. Um, you're seeing that with Walmart, too. Walmart got a lot of bad press on how much people are, are making and all their sales associates and all of that, and they've been trying to change that environment, too. I think that there's a lot of pressure on those kinds of things. And you wouldn't think it would matter uh, because if they, you know, deliver to the end user in the appropriate way, but I think people are demanding good working experiences, and I don't think mm -hmm. you can deliver customer experience if you're not a good leader on those dimensions. So I think all of that does matter. The, um, in the short term, you know, the people that I've been very close to, um, partly because they, they went to Wharton, um, but, you know, I think Neil Blumenthal and what he's done with Warby 
city and his yeah. social mission, I think that's inspirational with the way he's trying to lead that business, and he's doing a really nice job. And I think Mark Lurie, there's a lot of pressure on him. You know, he's the CEO of Jet.com and took over Walmart.com, and he's constantly <laughs> in the press and having to defend what they're doing. But I think he's got a very creative way of handling things. Yeah. You mentioned a whole bunch of things in in that which I find really interesting. And one one theme that uh, I believe is really important for retailers is investing in their people because you can't create, I think, a great experience unless you have highly motivated, energized people in the shop floor. And you can't have creativity around frictionless commerce or, or any other type of innovation as well if you treat sort of the employees as a cost center as opposed to really an investment in your business. And that's something that I've, I've noticed has been a sea change in the last couple of years as people have started to realize they need to do things differently and they need their entire organization to, uh, to come behind them. Yeah, I think that's the vulnerability potential in Amazon. They just released uh, some information that showed the median income at Amazon was 28000 hmm. You know, that's, yeah. that's low. <laughs> right. For median, you compare that tech company to Facebook, Google, there's a significant difference there. Now, Amazon's a very different business, but still, uh, you need to think about things like that. No, exactly. Last two questions, Bob, for you. First one, uh, anything that... Uh, you saw on the future that you didn't necessarily include in your book that you think could be really disruptive to retail, but maybe it's still in its nascent stages? Well, I mean, my book focused on the U.S., and the follow-up that I'm working on now is global. And a, a glaring omission in my book, because it focused on the U.S., is Alibaba. And yeah. Alibaba has NJD.com, and they have a very different model. And I've been traveling a lot, talking to a lot of people, giving talks here and there. And a lot of people say they think China's way ahead of the U.S. in retail, and some of the stuff they're doing is very innovative over there. So that's a very important area. And just the other thing that you mentioned is all these retailers are constantly being pushed for growth. So what's going to happen in India? What's going to happen in Europe? What's going to happen in Latin America? Uh, obviously, these behemoth retailers are eyeing all of that. And that is not clear how that's going to play out. Right. So my last question for you is, um, what advice do you have for young people graduating from Wharton or graduating from anywhere else or just simply entering the retail industry today? What do you think they need to be thinking about as they're, as they're managing their careers? You know, in thinking about retailing and more generally marketing, one of the things I'm hearing over and over and over, people used to think of this as, you know, the designer people, the artsy people might want to go into this, but marketing and retailing is about analytics. And uh, it's great to be designy and creative and have a good eye. All of that is important, but it's about data now. And you cannot be afraid of data. You've got to learn some of the basic skills. I think that's critical. Mm -hmm. Well, Barbara, I want to say uh, enormous thank you for joining me on Shopcast today. Uh, this has been a really engaging, entertaining conversation, and I encourage everybody to get a copy of The Shopping Revolution, which is uh, a really great read and really insightful and very stimulating. But Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to ShopCast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.